Hey everyone, and welcome to Beyond GIS, the show that helps you leverage digital geography to make critical decisions in a changing world. I'm Kurt, your host and founder of Orbica, an organization committed to pioneering geospatial democracy. We're going to deep dive into topics like the role of geospatial and digital transformation, developments and opportunities in geospatial, space, earth observation, and helping you abolish silos for better collaboration and transparency and visibility. We're looking to drop a new episode every other Wednesday because we believe that everyone deserves to access and leverage the power of geospatial in the modern world. Kia ora and welcome to another episode of Beyond GIS. Uh, today we're going to focus a bit uh, in on sort of tools and actually getting work done and look at the cost of isolation and sort of understand how silos and isolation can limit the growth both personally and organizationally. So sort of on that note I guess I've got K2, Kurt and Santosh with me again today. Let's put the hat on of actually doing work, doing stuff with data right. So we've got a pile of data, we've got a bunch of tools, we've got some problems we need to solve for, for our organization. What are some of the common frustrations people are finding these days in um, getting this work done? I guess to start off, um, most organizations um, collect a lot of data and they come in, again, varied formats, they come in varied standards. Um, So as an organization who's collecting a lot of data, they need some kind of a mechanism to store all that data sets which is, so they'll come up with some kind of a generic pattern to store all that data. Now, where the problem comes in is when you have geospatial data, for example, which requires certain kinds of data types or requires certain kinds of uh, file formats to be stored in a particular way. Um, It it doesn't probably fit into the generic model because they might have not been aware of spatial data types or they might not be aware of you know, or not expecting spatial files to be large, as large as they are. So again, managing that, maintaining that is a little bit of a issue, uh, which leads to creating spatial databases, which are then separate to your master database maybe. And then you gotta do some kind of wrangling to put that, to combine the spatial and the master together. So then there's, then there are sync issues and your spatial database is out of sync with your master database and you're constantly working to keep that in sync and, and maintaining that. So uh, because there's a lack of understanding of spatial data types maybe, uh, storing and managing of spatial data is one of the issues that I've come across. Yeah, and I guess from my side, it's all been about tooling and integration into older sort of platforms Mm -hmm. Um, how can you coherently build a workflow that will grab data from such a location transform it into something else feed that into another software package um, grab that out and on and on and on down these kind of processing chains Um, and it seems we've kind of gone from where we were 10 or so years ago to a far more far more cohesive environment with that sort of stuff because of the open source world and because of you know software languages like R and Python have now got connectors into pretty much all of these different packages and and libraries it's a lot easier to do that stuff without having to jump out mm-hmm. outside of your pipeline to do a process and then bring it back into your pipeline so I mean I'm hearing there's so much in it 
with so much inefficiency, right, that's created or inertia around the need to suck data from here to here to here to here to here. And I, I guess a lot gets lost in translation along oh, the way. Yeah. I mean, if you're just thinking about provenance of that data workload, that's now spinning into different formats and different systems using different languages to process it. How many times have any of us done something and we've got the result and we've forgotten how we got to that result? <laughs> you know, because we've done six or seven geoprocessing steps that might have been bumped out of one piece of code, we've treated it in something and some sort of command line sort of thing, bumped it back in, treated it in some sort of package. And it's hard, and that's one of the things that gets lost when you step outside of a, a really consistent, cohesive processing pipeline. And it's something we use Python all the time here for our processing because it allows that to be the glue between a whole bunch of different applications and using different APIs, mm. using running things on the command line like we found one the other day where we were using we were using something to push our 1.7 gig shapefile to a Postgres database a PostGIS database you know and it kept on crashing and then we tried some open source OGR ran it as a sub-process in the command in the Python script it was done in like two minutes um, mm -hmm. so it's again it's being able to sort of build all of those in one place and be able to to really keep a good handle on your pipeline of doing things. Yeah, that's a great example because, you know, for example, if somebody is a, you know, data administrator and they've got this bunch of data sitting in some S3 buckets that they want to bring into their database, and if they're not aware of, let's say, a tool like OGR or a tool like Shapely or a tool like one of these spatial yeah. libraries, then they probably won't be able to bring in that spatial information along to the database. Right, and then so in order to manage that, there is probably some kind of a workaround where they would keep the file in the cloud and they would make some kind of a link to it in the database and then it becomes inefficient for you to bring it in when you're doing analysis because you don't have the actual geometry right there with you. Um, so yeah, so that does create inefficiencies in translations of data between one format to another, from one system to another. And um, also when you are, you know, traditionally because again, Geospatial has been a very, on a specialized knowledge skill, organization would do its work in their own master database yeah. and then it'll have to come out of that, go into this geospatial world where they'll, well, we will do a bunch of processing to it, which is almost like a black box. People don't really know what happens in that box. And then out comes some other result, which then somehow gets sucked back in. And so in the master database, you might only have the source and the process yeah. data, but you have no idea how that was. Yeah created unless you have proper documentation and proper kind of provenance of the data set, which is most of the time missing. And that's, you know, that's yeah. incredibly common in, in councils and in organizations where you do have a turnover of staff, you know. Someone comes in, designs some cool script that does everything, they set all the pipeline up so it does stuff, and they leave. The next people who come in kind of know what's going on, mm -hmm. but not 100%. They leave the next people until you get into the situation where we have a model, we know it takes a bunch of files in, does some magic, and it gives us an output. And we know if the output's right or not by looking at it, but we can't tell you realistically mm -hmm. what the model is doing at every step. Um, you know, and, and that kind of provenance of data, as well as the processing pipeline logging hmm. uh, has become more and more important I, typically when i do things nowadays i do it on a i have in my mindset it's going to be repeated 
even if I'm only doing it for one output, I design it so it's repeatable. Mm. So everything is in the code. I can see every little chunk. Oh yeah, it's going to grab the data from here. Oh yeah, it's pulling the data from here. Mm. It's not like I go to a website, I download some data, I'm going to put that somewhere, then I'm just going to use that mm. file. I will build in that downloading step, whether it's coming out of a PostGIS database or a, you know, a WFS or a WMS, writing it down in the code so I know where the data's coming from, what treatments have happened to that code to produce that file. Um, and, and that's a key thing that we're all guilty of. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, I don't know if you're really, it's, it's like, you know, logging and error handling and these kind of things are have been standard practices in software development for ages. Yeah. You know, every software people develop, they do logging, they make sure that they can trace back down their errors and things like that. But that's a very kind of computer science software development-ish kind of knowledge base, yeah. which us as geospatial professionals or GIS professionals don't really come out learning those skills. Mm -hmm. And so when we do our processing, we're just focused on the objective of the problem and trying to find a solution to the problem and doing the data, analytics to get the solution. We are not really thinking about, even though we know we preach about metadata and we preach about you know provenance and things like that, when we do the work, our focus is more on solving the problem rather than the technical issues of... Yeah, it's output focus because yeah, yeah. you're really focused on getting this output to use in another step, yeah. not so much the steps that are taken to get to that output. Yeah, the details are often <coughs> missed. Yeah. yeah, I think this is part of why it's often look at, looked at as a black science. I mean, AI actually has elements of this going on too, right? Yeah. Um, so actually just touching on that a bit more, so we're talking about application development, yeah, been around Git, da da da, yeah. version control. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, why haven't we used more of that stuff? I mean, there's all these modern frameworks, Git, to, ah. to do this, but yeah. we're not applying that product thinking kind of to data and data products, I guess. Because, I mean, I don't know, I think it's like GIS and GSP professionals, you know, they're more of the analytical and analyst kind of mindset, mindset yeah, rather than more um, kind of structured kind of mm. developer or computer science kind of a mindset. I think it's a different way of thinking. People mm. prioritize different things. Like for example, I don't know, this, might, this is just my personal opinion. I don't think it's <laughs> obvious opinion, but uh, in my- <laughs> Disclaimer. Uh, no, like in my personal opinion, like, you know, developers are more focused on things like the quality of the code, how well the code is written, how well it can, how optimized is the code mm. written and things like that. Whereas they're not really that interested in what the result is coming out at. Whereas as analysts, you're more, you don't care about the quality of the code or the, how fast it's running. You're more interested in, is it giving me the right result, mm -hmm. yeah. right? So I think the focus is different for the different kind of personas, I guess, for different mm -hmm. people working on the same problem. And so because we've been more, like Kurt said, output focused or more on the results focused, mm -hmm. the, the, the journey to the result is often left because I just don't think we prioritize that. Yeah. And for uh, a lot of the times, it's usually some kind of a constraint, either a time constraint, because if you want to write really good quality code that does all the error handling and does all the logging, as well as get a good, uh, as well as develop a nice model that gives you the correct result, requires quite a bit of time and effort. And there's always a constraint of either budget, time, mm. which means you have to compromise one or the other. And usually, in our experience, people are willing to compromise quality of code versus quality of result. Yeah. I think quality of result is definitely more important because they're going to make decisions out of it. 
a code breaks, that's fine. They can probably live with it. But if the results are wrong, then the implications are much higher, I feel. So I think that's been one of the problems. And now, with again, with open source technologies and open source tools, uh, the blending of coding and computer science and GIS and geospatial is coming together now. And, you know, like all of your modern tools like R, like SAS, like Jupyter, all of them now, or Python, all of them now support geospatial functions within them. So now as developers, they can start leveraging the use of geospatial to do their logging. So hopefully coming in the future, we'll be able to provide a better, a more robust solution for provenance and for um, data management and looking at the history of the data. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with that. You know, I do terrible, terrible coding that gets things (laughs) done. compared to someone who would do nice code that works perfectly and really fast to produce an output. And I'm just worried about looking at the output and getting the output correct, less so the code, you know. And I think things have changed. And, and, you know, back in my day, um, you had the scientists and you had computer scientists. Mm. Um, They'd be doing their bit and this computer scientist would be doing another bit. And since the kind of the development of data science and that kind of really interdisciplinary computer science Mm -hmm. um, has allowed people to come through with those domain skills from geography, from biology, from chemistry, pulling in those data science parts and merging them. So not only are they good at sort of thinking about the problem and thinking about what the output's supposed to be, they've also got the rigor Mm -hmm. of, of good coding practice. Yeah, and adding to that, the more modern kind of organizational practices of building cross-functional teams is very valuable, very important because with cross-functional teams, um, again, you don't have the silos of teams. You don't have developers just developing code here and analysts just developing models here and data administrators just managing data here. You come, you form a team to solve a particular problem, then the problem and the team is cross-functional. So you've got people from data, you've got people from development and analytics. And at that project level or at that organizational level, you can start setting standards, either code standards or result standards. And if you set those standards, then people who are not really great in writing code can learn from the cross-functional other team members how to write good quality code so they can provide that feedback back into the system. Versus also the developers who are not very result focused, if you have some standards of how the results need to be created and, and dealt with, then they can learn how their code actually impacts the result as yeah. well. So I think the importance of cross-functional teams are really important. Gone are the days where you have just a developer team or just a GIS team yeah. or just a data administrator team. Now it's more about a project team or an outcome team yeah. or, a, or a more of a... It's a domain specific. Yeah. So if we're looking to, and we firmly believe that, right? Uh, it's uh, it's multiple heads are going to solve the challenges ahead of organisations yeah. and the globe. So just your concept before K two about you know you can get it to work, you can get the output, and I hear all the time you you throw it over the fence over to the guy over here in the office to actually optimise it and clean yeah, it up yeah. and build a pipeline that is you know ten times faster and more robust, right? There's cross-functional collaboration yeah, happening definitely. right there and then. Yeah. But what's happening is you're working off the same language and the same tool set, right? You're not kicking it up and down different systems, downloading no. it, installing it, desktop package, cloud package. So explain that workflow. And I know we're coming around Python and R and there's standard languages that exist already. Yeah. We don't need new special stuff. What does that look like and how does that flow happen between teams and team members? 
Um, I mean, right now we've got tools like, for example, like Jupiter. I can, I can, I can mm-hmm. talk about that. So, like, you know, as our analyst teams or as our modeling teams, we can develop models within notebooks and within Jupyter kind of framework. And they don't have to be perfect code. They just have to create the good result and the, and then the right result. And we know that, you know, as an organization, we decided we're going to use Python. We're going to use X kind of libraries. And once that kind of, that's kind of established, our analysts can write all kind of models and then pass it over to our developing de- development kind of members of that project. And because they're also aware from the beginning that we're going to be using Python, we're going to be using these kind of libraries and structures for our kind of applications, they can pick those notebooks up and then create APIs and services on top of that because, you know, they are learning from our analysts of how analyst codes code is written. Mm-hmm. And then our analysts are learning from our developers how to write better quality code. So over time, as we mature and as the as the team matures, people just pick up those kind of skills over time. I mean, by virtue of it being in a sort of singular platform, yeah. picking a language and a set of tools that everybody can co-collaborate on, co-create, yeah. uh, you were touching on that institutional knowledge loss, yeah. which every organization struggles with, right? Particularly yeah. with such a mobile workforce these days. Surely, inherently, being in one place with a common language that many people can understand, that starts to help mitigate a lot of that. And and Jupiter's really good because it not only allows you to break your code up into chunks that you can rerun and, and coming in from that sort of the analyst side looking for the product you might be just wanting to one run but multiple times to see mm-hmm. what the different outputs are so you can iterate through and tune the model to do it you can do that really well in Jupiter, but you can also build that contextual data in it that says you know here's a bit of plain text in it that does like super comments basically mm-hmm. uh, i can add can document your code yeah. document in plain text English in chunks, um, which all of these can be also converted into straight Python files. Um, but it's just a nice way of kind of being able to work remotely, stably, and, mm. you know, I can do it on my laptop, I can terminal into an EC2 and do it. Yeah. I mean, actually, it's a... So where we always see a choke point to inside organisation, and we've touched on it before, is that movement from, hey, I've now got an output, We've got somewhat of an optimized data pipe. How do we push it to production? Yeah. Oh, it's on the desktop and the different libraries and different version of Python. Oh man, like that thing and the benefits of the cloud, like how, because we're going through this transformation ourselves. Oh, we're mean, no different than any other geospatial. We've yeah. still got desktops going. We're still we've, doing things. We've still got know. problems where I'll install one version mm. of Jupyter with a bunch of libraries, and someone else mm. will install Jupyter with a bunch of libraries, and we still can't get the code play nicely between them. Mm. Um, and I guess moving to a kind of um, harmonized development environment using something like Jupyter Hub, which is a multi-version, multi-user version of Jupyter um, with a prescribed set of libraries that we know work really well, allows people to come in and be more collaborative within that environment mm. with less of the, I've run my code, it works, but it didn't produce an output like yours. Uh, and, and I think that's one of the key key tools to mm-hmm. being able to sort of do collaborative development yeah. on the cloud. Yeah, and also for organizations, for like the IT teams and the DevOps teams for organizations, now they've got tools like Kubernetes and everything that can standardize your deployment of Jupyter or deployment of any Python interface. 
and in that way when any user in the organization spins up their own environment they know what they're going to get they know it's going to be standardized every other user every other person who's spinning up these kind of notebooks are going to get the exact same configuration um which allows them to then easily collaborate with each other so i can write a notebook now share it with mm. kurt and because he's spinning up the same environment in using kubernetes and these kind of things he'll be able to consume my code and there should be no no issues there so yeah so those kind of technologies are also increasing to provide more uh what do you call that ease of deployment of these resources yeah. standardization of these resources and scaling the resources yeah. I think, you know we we tried to run a notebook the other day on, on a small instance that had 8 gig of ram and we we're like oh it keeps restarting why is that and we go to my instance and the the script itself is using 22 gig of ram so it's like yeah. oh yeah, yeah yeah that's why that's not working so actually that elasticity <clears throat> It's another good point. So typically big GIS data, you know, still often desktop tools for the heavy lifting. Uh, that means heavy hardware. Yeah. And that whole world of inherently, because all of us GIS folks are hacky, we love installing the latest stuff too. So it's very easy to get into the world of different versions mm-hmm. at a desktop level. And then, oh, it has to run for a week. Oh no, now broke, you know, so yeah. I lost a week, you know, classic. Again, cloud and that interoperability and that common language interface and the ability to be able to visualize and share the code together should be able to iron this stuff out much faster yeah. in a cross-functional way. And that flexibility also allows you to say, I have a deadline for this project, has to be done by this. I know that using this configuration takes X many hours. Right, open the tap up, let's throw more processes yep. at it, let's throw more RAM at it. That will increase it. Mm. You know, And you have that ability without going... We need to find another machine around the office that has more RAM, more processing mm. power, or we need to upgrade machines. And back to the Kubernetes, or the, the microservice modern scalable approach yeah. to thinking about platforms, right? Yeah. It, it, it's there. It, it's, we need to lean on it. We need to utilize it. Yeah, and the other advantage of using microservices as well, or that concept, is you can pick the right tool for the right task. Mm. So, like, for example, you know, uh, I've noticed in the past where you have um, an organization has really embedded knowledge of R, let's say, right? And they'll use R for everything. You know, they'll use R for doing the modeling, they'll use R for doing ETL, they'll use R for doing all sorts of other things. Visualization, interactivity. Yeah, creating, uh, you know, web maps, creating dashboards, mm-hmm. they'll do everything in R because that's what their organization knows. Uh, and also, there is a cost for an organization if they want to suddenly switch to Python or something, then there's a cost for them to either hire those resources or upskill their resources to into Python. Uh, but if you go with the concept of microservices, then yes, you can. what you can do is you can do all of your major modeling and, and analysis in R if you want. And if you just want to do your, because Python is more optimized to do ETL, then you can just decompose that piece out of R and just run it mm-hmm. as its own service. Um, whereas in the more older traditional methods, Everything is kind of a single stack. You've yep. got a single technology stack and you're trying to fit all your use cases into one mm-hmm. language or one technology stack that you are aware of um, just because you don't have the option to decompose the different pieces of the project and, and, and use different tools. Jupyter is basically just like a, a web-based IDE. It runs on 400 different languages. Yep. Um, so what you can do is you can have notebooks that'll run in Python that call mm-hmm. out chunks of R code uh, and so it allows you to chop and change and it, it kind of seems like a a gooey glue you know mm-hmm. it's a way of building uh, an interface 
and a way of running your code, but still allow the flexibility of where those code, code sets and where those libraries come from, which is one of the, the reasons I like it mm. is that flexibility. So if we start to sort of wrap up, um, you know, collaboration is really where it's at and then how do we enhance and allow that to happen, right? So these common frameworks, common languages, um, modern approaches um, to delivery of value, just special value. So I don't know, what, what's the last sort of thought or, or, or benefit of, of this sort of work? And maybe reflect on a project over the years where you know the customer, particularly the domain expert, has really been alongside us on the journey, learning and actually collaborating with us because they know their world. Yeah. And that's the other bit that's how do we, and they don't need to be data geniuses or coding geniuses, but they need to be part of the mix. Yeah. Uh, maybe reflect on something like that because we've talked a lot about the data geek stuff. I guess context is everything. You mm. know? At the end of the day, because we are output focus, results focus, that has to be taken into context within the discipline it's being made for. Mm. Um, so, I mean, having the having product owners or project owners along for the ride at every step, and you can say, does this output look right? I, I've followed your equations, yeah. but I don't know if this looks right. Um, you can show it to them and they'll go, oh yeah, well, the maximum values are half a million. Yep, no, nah, that's fine. Mm. You know, you can start getting into that process of not knowing exactly what the output should be that's being guided by them and you're just trying to produce an output mm. that has that peer review at the end. Uh, and I think that's sort of that interruptibility and the ability to collaborate are key mm. for sort of things now, I think. Um, and which the cloud stuff is very suited for by its nature. Um, for me, I think it's more about the, the right tool for the right fool, I guess. Um, it's about, you know, uh, like I said, about cross-functional teams. Um, everybody has their own set of technology stack that they are comfortable in, that they're willing to use in. And right now, Geospatial is so kind of ubiquitous. It's becoming more ubiquitous. It's available in almost every library. Um, so I guess my two cents would be that as a cross-functional team, learn from each other you know if you're more results focused think about how to be how to think about structure of coding and things like that if you're more coding focused quality focused think about how, how your code and the results that you're creating are going to be analyzed and are going to be visualized mm -hmm. so as you know as geospatial we are constantly learning you know we're either learning new versions or learning new buttons in the software learning is just part of in our dna so i would recommend continue learning and keep the cross-functional team going and yeah use the right tool at the right place yeah not try to fit in everything into one tool mm. so yeah awesome thanks for your insights guys um and thanks audience for listening uh, we'll see you at the next episode of beyond gis thanks Alrighty, i hope that was helpful and you got some good content or ideas out of today's episode if you have any questions find me on linkedin check the show notes below for the spelling and link or reach out to us at orbica.com and I'll catch you in the next one.